This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We worship an awesome God in the blue states. The, the president's uh, problem is that he was born a Muslim. Not God bless America, God damn America. My Christian faith then has been a sustaining force for me over these last few years. Marriage itself is now being redefined and at a very incredible velocity. President Obama made it very clear that he wanted to be the abortion president. Welcome to the history of evangelicals in politics, the Obama era. This is episode seven, September 11th and the end of compassionate conservatism. I'm John Fia. Once he defeated the straight talking maverick John McCain in the primaries and secured the 2000 GOP nomination for president, George W. Bush turned to the general election, where he would face the sitting vice president of the United States and former Tennessee Senator Al Gore. Like Bush, Gore identified as a born-again Christian. Raised in the Southern Baptist Church, he had a conversion experience in his 20s. Gore told the New York Times that being born again means coming into a new awareness of a personal relationship with God at a time in your life when you're more capable than you were as a child. He and his wife, Tipper, who gained national attention for her crusade against profane language in heavy metal, punk, and hip-hop music, were baptized by immersion at a Washington, D.C. church in the late 1970s. Gore was a student of scripture who claimed on the campaign trail that everything in the Bible makes sense to me. And in a May 1999 speech at a local Salvation Army in Atlanta, he proposed a new era of civil society collaboration, a new partnership, he called it, between the federal government and religious congregations. Today, I give you this pledge, Gore said. If you elect me your president, the voices of faith-based organizations will be integral to the policies set forth in my administration. But Bush and the Christian right could easily use Gore's religious beliefs against him. If he was a born-again Christian, he was not their kind of born-again Christian. Gore was pro-choice. He spent a year studying at the theologically liberal Vanderbilt Divinity School and rejected a literal interpretation of the Bible. He seemed more concerned with applying his Christian faith to issues related to the environment, homelessness, drug addiction, and youth violence 
than he was abortion, gay marriage, and other Christian right causes. Gore defeated New Jersey Senator and former NBA player Bill Bradley in the 2000 Democratic primaries. Bradley was a religious seeker himself who went through an evangelical phase in the 1960s and 1970s. He had a conversion experience in high school and used his platform as a member of the 1964 U.S. Olympic basketball team to share his newfound faith as a spokesperson for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He even shared his testimony at a 1966 Billy Graham crusade in London. By 2000, Bradley had long abandoned some of the beliefs of his evangelical youth, but he still infused his politics with a moral and prophetic purpose. Bradley was a fan of the work of Jim Wallace, the editor of Sojourner's Magazine, and a fixture of the evangelical left. Though Gore won every caucus and primary, Bradley forced the vice president to define his views on abortion. The New Jersey senator wanted Democratic primary voters to see that he, and not Gore, was the real pro-choice candidate in this race. He tried to paint Gore as a conservative Democrat in the hopes of winning the left wing of the party. Gore was thus forced on multiple occasions before public audiences to clarify in no uncertain terms that despite his previous opposition to the federal funding of abortion, he now supported such funding, as well as the high court's decision in Roe v. Wade. The Christian right, of course, was watching all of this. It was obvious that Gore was not their man. In the end, it is likely that Bradley made Gore a weaker general election candidate by pushing him slightly to the left. In one of the most controversial elections in American history, George Bush won 74% of the evangelical vote, 84% of the vote of white evangelicals who regularly attended church, and after the Supreme Court intervened to decide the race in Florida, the presidency of the United States. Gore's new partnership between the federal government and faith-based programs never really got any traction, partly because George W. Bush made such initiatives a part of his campaign as well. Bush ran in 2000 as a compassionate conservative. His approach to politics sought to alleviate poverty and other social ills through a fusion of free markets government grants, and the work of non-governmental organizations, such as charities, nonprofits, and faith-based organizations. Government partnership with religious groups was at the heart of Bush's compassionate conservatism. He was influenced by the so-called godfather of the movement, University of Texas journalism professor, former atheist and communist, and now editor of the Evangelical World magazine, Marvin Olasky. According to Weekly Standard editor Bill Kristol, Olasky had hit the conservative movement like a thunderbolt. When the New York Times magazine journalist David Gran asked members of the Bush administration to explain what compassionate conservatism might look like in practice, he was told to talk to Marvin. Olasky believed that the welfare state had failed the poor. 
What poor people really needed was a work ethic, a sense of purpose, and a moral character. These things, Olasky believed, could only come through organized religion. In the 1980s, he tested his ideas on the streets of Washington, D.C. Olasky dressed up as a beggar and visited homeless shelters and soup kitchens. He wandered the streets of the Capitol, finding plenty of food and a place to lay his head at night. But no one ever asked him to tell his story or offered to teach him how to help himself. At every shelter and kitchen, he asked those in charge if he could have a Bible, but he never received one. Most of these places, Olasky concluded, have forgotten that people have souls. Conservative politicians began to notice Alasky's work. William Bennett, the former Secretary of Education under Ronald Reagan, said Olasky's book, The Tragedy of American Compassion, was the most important study of welfare and social policy in a decade. Georgia Congressman Newt Gingrich announced that conservatives are going to redefine compassion and take it back. Republican Indiana Senator Dan Coats, a graduate of Evangelical Wheaton College, tried and largely failed to pass compassionate conservative bills through Congress. One of those failed proposals, the Character Development Act, was designed to help at-risk youth, juvenile delinquents, and gang members through grants designed for mentoring programs. When George W. Bush became governor of Texas, Olasky became a trusted advisor on faith-based initiatives. Bush funneled state money into religious organizations addressing drug abuse, prison reform, and child care. Virtually every time his political opponents said he was violating the separation of church and state with such grants, he got another endorsement from the Christian right. Bush's program proved successful in Texas, and soon critics had to ask themselves if they were willing to put up with religious beliefs that made them uncomfortable if the programs driven by those beliefs reduced the numbers of rapes, drug abusers, assaults, and murders. Immediately after his inauguration as the 43rd president of the United States, Bush opened the White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives and appointed University of Pennsylvania political scientist John DeUlio, a Catholic, as its director. In March 2001, DeUlio spoke to the members of the National Association of Evangelicals and made it clear that organizations focused on religious conversion were not eligible for direct grants from Bush's new program. DeUlio distinguished a faith-based organization that rehabilitated houses, for example, from a faith-based drug treatment program that taught that the only way to overcome addiction was to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Alaska and the Christian right did not like these distinctions. He believed that the grant restrictions DeUlio laid out discriminated against evangelical organizations who did focus on conversion. Richard Land of the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention had a different take. 
he said that even if Southern Baptist congregations were eligible for Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiative grants, he would not touch the money with the proverbial 10-foot pole, since the entire program would lead to the federal government dictating what churches could and could not do. Jerry Falwell was upset at the possibility that Bush's grant program might end up funding Muslim organizations. Pat Robertson feared that federal money might go to Sun Myung Moon's Unification Church, the Church of Scientology, or the Hare Krishnas. He said that federal money would be like a narcotic to evangelical agencies, a drug from which they would not be able to break free. It is worth noting here that 18 months later, Robertson joined the list of potential addicts when he accepted a grant from the Bush program to help fund his controversial charity, Operation Blessing. Though some leaders of the Christian right were not pleased with the rollout of Bush's compassionate conservatism, they could not deny that Bush was in their corner on the policy issues they believed to be most important. He ended the so-called Mexico City policy that funded family planning clinics in foreign countries that performed abortions. He signed laws forbidding partial birth abortions, funded abstinence programs, and restricted embryonic stem cell research. Bush always began cabinet meetings with prayer, had morning devotions using Oswald Chambers' book, My Utmost for His Highest, attended White House Bible studies, and talked about his faith whenever he had the opportunity. Historian Daniel K. Williams has noted that Bush's appointments to cabinet posts and staff positions made his administration the most overtly evangelical in American history. His attorney general, John Ashcroft, was the son of a Pentecostal minister and had actually cut a gospel album. Bush's Secretary of Commerce, Don Evans, was an evangelical who gave the president a copy of The One-Year Bible, a bestseller for Christian publishing firm Tyndale House. Condoleezza Rice, Bush's national security advisor, was the daughter of a Presbyterian minister who often participated with Bush in worship services at Camp David. And then there was Bush's chief speechwriter, Michael Gerson, a Wheaton College graduate who was known for seasoning the president's speeches with scripture and other Christian language. During Bush's 2003 State of the Union address, which Gerson helped to write, he referenced the wonder-working power of the American people. Evangelicals listening that evening could not help but think about Lewis Jones's 1899 hymn, There is Power in the Blood. It went something like this. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Sorry about that. As my students know, I have a habit of occasionally breaking into song during my lectures. By the late summer of his first year in office, it appeared that compassionate conservatism would define the Bush presidency. And then everything changed. On Tuesday morning, September 11, 2001, members of an Islamic terrorist group known as Al-Qaeda hijacked four commercial airplanes. 
They crashed two of them into the World Trade Center in Manhattan, eventually destroying both 110-story towers. One plane slammed into the Pentagon, the building that housed the U.S. Department of Defense. A fourth plane, possibly headed for the U.S. Capitol, crashed in a field outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania, after courageous passengers overtook the terrorists in the cockpit. The full story of 9-11 is outside the scope of this podcast, but the tragic events certainly invoked evangelical reaction. At the September 14, 2001 prayer meeting at the Washington National Cathedral, 82-year-old Billy Graham made an appeal to the God of all comfort, a reference to St. Paul's words to the Christians at first century Corinth. As he had been doing for decades, Graham called Americans to God in the midst of their trouble. He talked about the mystery of evil, our need for each other in times of crisis, and the terrorist attacks as an occasion for national and spiritual revival. He ended his message with the sufferings of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world, his resurrection from the dead, and the promise of salvation to all who believe. It was vintage Graham. Some evangelical leaders, however, had a different response. Jerry Falwell went on Pat Robertson's 700 Club and said that God allowed the enemies of America to give us probably what we deserve. He blamed the attacks on the American Civil Liberties Union, suggesting that God was punishing the U.S. for throwing him out of the public square and the public schools. The abortionists were also to blame. The killing of 40 million innocent babies, Falwell claimed, provoked God's wrath on America. He also added the pagans, feminists, gays, and lesbians to his list of those who deserve some blame for what happened on September 11. Robertson agreed with Falwell. The attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon could only be understood through the lens of a God who would not tolerate sin among his people. Falwell and Robertson delivered classic Jeremiads, not unlike, as we saw in a previous episode of this podcast, Jeremiah Wright's Chickens Coming Home to Roost sermon that he delivered from his pulpit at Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago on the Sunday after 9-11. The only difference, and granted, it was an important difference, one that separated the black church tradition from the white evangelical tradition, was the reason for God's anger. In the days following the attacks, George W. Bush worked hard at separating the Islamic terrorists responsible for the deaths of nearly 3,000 Americans on 9-11 from the millions of American citizens of Muslim faith who condemned the attacks. In his September 20, 2001 address before a joint session of Congress, Bush said that the United States respected the Islamic faith, adding that its teachings are good and peaceful, and those who commit evil in the name of Allah blaspheme the name of Allah. The enemy of America is not our many Muslim friends. It is not our many Arab friends. Our enemy, Bush added, is a radical network of terrorists and every government that supports them. In December 2001, the Pew Research Center found that Americans had a better opinion of Muslim Americans than they did before the September 11 attacks. 
The survey, according to Pew, found clear evidence that Americans were heeding President Bush's call for tolerance toward Muslims. But many leading evangelicals appeared to have missed this distinction. Over the course of the next several months, they had some choice words for the followers of Allah. By 2003, 77% of evangelical leaders had an unfavorable view of Islam. 70% believed it was a religion of violence. Billy Graham's son, Franklin, referred to Islam as a very evil and very wicked religion and called on the United States to use weapons of mass destruction to stop Al-Qaeda. Jerry Vines, the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, and a past president of the Southern Baptist Convention, called Muhammad a demon-possessed pedophile. Pat Robertson said that Islam is a religion that seeks to control, dominate, or if need be, destroy others. In October 2011, Falwell put his foot in his mouth again. This time he had to apologize for calling Muhammad a terrorist on the CBS News program 60 Minutes. It appears that Shiite Muslim clerics in Lebanon and Iran said he was a mercenary who must be killed. As historian Thomas Kidd has shown us, following 9-11, the evangelical publishing houses started rushing anti-Muslim books into press. In late 2001, California megachurch pastor and author John MacArthur published Terrorism, Jihad, and the Bible, in which he argued that 9-11 was just the latest example of the violence that had long characterized Islamic faith. He wrote that Muslim violence had all the characteristics of demonic possession. MacArthur concluded that Islam was a perverse and evil lie that invariably produced perverted and diabolical deeds, such as the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Also at the end of 2002, Hal Lindsey, best known in evangelical circles for his 1970 book about end times prophecy titled The Late Great Planet Earth, published The Everlasting Hatred, The Roots of Jihad. Lindsay traced Islamic hatred of Israel and the United States to Ishmael's hatred for his brother Isaac. He suggested that on 9-11, Satan used the descendants of Ishmael, the Muslims, to kill Americans because the United States had befriended God's chosen people. John Hagee, an evangelical megachurch pastor in San Antonio known for his ardent Christian Zionism, also connected 9-11 to the differences among the children of Abraham in the book of Genesis. The root of the problem, Hagee wrote in his book, Attack on America, was that the Jews are descended from Isaac and the Arabs are descended from Ishmael. Through his own reading of biblical prophecy, Hagee taught that Arab nations would one day unite with Russia to attack Israel with nuclear weapons, thus setting the Great Tribulation and the so-called end times into motion. Other evangelicals took more rational and informed approaches. For example, in his 2002 book, Is the Father of Jesus the God of Muhammad? Timothy George, the dean of the evangelical Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama, 
noted the theological differences between Islam and Christianity, but he called for more dialogue and understanding between the two world religions. George's position represented the views of most moderate evangelical leaders, scholars, and pundits. But as we will see in future episodes of this podcast, evangelicals in the pew were much closer in their understanding of Islam to the teachings of MacArthur, Lindsay, and Hagee. 9-11 and a certain evangelical view of Islam would have a profound effect on American politics in the years to come, leading one to wonder what evangelical politics might have looked like if 9-11 did not happen. What impact might Bush's compassionate conservatism have had on the culture wars if the White House had more time and resources to cultivate it? And with that question, we come to the end of this episode. From this point forward, with the background set, we will begin our deep dive into evangelicals and politics in what I am calling the age of Obama, the years between 2004 and 2016. I'm looking forward to the ride, and I hope you are as well. History of Evangelicals and Politics is produced by Casey Lehman. It is a podcast for patrons of Current, an online platform that includes daily commentary, reflection, and judgment from diverse and talented writers representing positions across the political spectrum. Current also hosts The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections on American history, politics, religion, and academic life. This podcast is made possible by our patrons. Please consider supporting us by heading over to currentpub.com and clicking the red support button. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.